Hello, I'm Jill Baker and would like to welcome you to Henson's new series of podcasts which looks at welfare cases in the Court of Protection. These podcasts are intended for social care providers. Hempsons are leading health, social care and charity lawyers who work very closely with social care providers on the full range of legal issues they face. With no further ado, I'm going to pass you over to Rachel Hawkin and Liz Stokes, who are both members of Hempsons Health and Social Care Advisory Team and are very experienced on working on COP welfare matters. Hi Jill, thank you. I'm Rachel and the social care sector plays an often understated role in welfare cases. So the intention of this series, over a course of six episodes, is to take you through the basics of court of protection for welfare matters and delve into areas where providers are likely to be involved, what they should consider and how they can prepare. This second episode will be an overview discussion between myself and Liz, considering the ways in which a social care provider may find themselves involved in a court of protection case, whether formally or informally. So Liz, the first topic that I thought we were talking about before we dive into examples is to look at the ways in which a social care provider may be involved. And in my experience, that tends to be more indirectly than directly. And this is often contrary to the position that welfare matters always relate to a service user who predominantly are in the care of the social care provider. In my experience, it's been quite rare for social care providers to be joined as a party to proceedings, Rather, they're more of a conduit to provide information, attend roundtable meetings, facilitate visits, for example, to assist the court and the parties to proceedings. Before we go into the elements that I've kind of picked out as the main way that social care providers may be involved, formally or informally, have you got any alternative experience as to the extent to which social care providers have been directly involved? Hi, Rachel. No, I, I have to say I agree with you. I think in terms of uh, social care providers, I think Aaron's experience has been based on um, largely the commissioners being formal parties and social care providers acting, as you say, for a conduit for information and supporting. I think that's, and I'd, and I'd be interested to know what you think. I think there's an often case that there is therefore a bit of a lack of understanding of what the court of protection procedure and the process is for those actual social care providers. And it's sort of receiving information almost secondhand um, in terms of what's ongoing. So I think what would be useful, I and, and if I stand corrected by those social care providers, um, would be sort of to understand a basic understanding of the process. And I think we covered that previously in some of our earlier podcasts, but I think, um, as you say, that the, the involvement of social care providers has been, I think, more peripheral than formal. Social care providers are not often, in my experience, joined formally as parties to proceedings um, and are not necessarily included in that way. Absolutely, so I'd agree and I think that often makes it harder as you've said for them to know what the next steps are and how they actually need to progress the matter. So one of the first areas that I've thought that we could briefly discuss is deprivation of liberty safeguards. So I appreciate that we're at the point where now we've had quite literally years of discussion about LPS, Liberty Protection Safeguards, and we're at the point where the LPS consultation response is being considered. But in the meantime, we need to continue to use the deprivation of liberty safeguards as that will remain in force until LPS is introduced. So I think this is an example of care homes almost kind of starting the journey within court of protection, if you like, where they need to have a very good awareness of issues such as the Mental Capacity Act and best interests, as we discussed, as you said, in our first episode. And the ability to be able to recognise the service user lacking capacity 
And this kind of starts the ball rolling of providing information to the supervisory body, addressing queries, being that conduit to provide information so the supervisory body can put that standard authorization in place. And I think it's vital to know that the social care provider is kind of in the best possible position to have their records up to date, looking at compliance, addressing any queries as to conditions, because often when we move on to the next topic of Section 21A challenges, that often presents as a bit of a gap in the information that they're often then asked to provide. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I think an understanding of the deprivation of liberty safeguards such as it can be gained at the moment is really important and a really good basis and, and I think that as I think you touched on is, is almost a subject in its own right and we could do a whole podcast of that uh, as they um, develop uh, the new procedures but as you say in terms of the uh, section 21a challenges which is a big part I think of of the day-to-day -day work in the court of protection um, an understanding of what they are and how the standard authorizations fit into that is really important um, so looking at Section 21A challenges, um, can you explain a little bit about what, what we mean by that? Yeah, so a Section 21A challenge quite literally refers to an element of Section 21A of the Mental Capacity Act 2005. And it's the vehicle within which service users who object to their standard authorisation can bring a challenge. And that challenge is brought within the Court of Protection. So as providers listening to this will be aware, the standard authorisation only applies to residents in hospitals or care homes. So that is, again, the vehicle that we're looking at in terms of challenging that. So it's only for social care providers who have got residents subject to standard authorisation that the Section 21A challenge can be brought. So the purpose of a Section 21A challenge is to make sure that there's a proper review of the service users' human rights. And as soon as a staff member, and this I think is quite key for service um, for social care providers to be aware of, is that as soon as they're aware that a service user is being deprived of their liberty or objecting to care arrangements, then that's when the ball starts to roll. So we should have an advocate or a representative on behalf of the service user who then notifies legal teams of this objection being raised. And that's when social care providers will begin to notice that they're being very indirectly involved by asking for copies of the standard authorisation, asking for information as to how much conditions have been complied with, the level of objections that's been raised. And that's when those acting on behalf of the service user will look to start a Section 21A challenge within the Court of Protection. So that really is the point at which social care providers are brought in, isn't it? They become aware. And, and when we talk about objections, um, it's not a direct criticism necessarily on any social care provider and the objections are around that individual expressing mm. an objection to being in that home. So in terms of com the common basis for objections, I think we're talking about residing in a care home and actually indicating they want to go home or um, being in a least restrictive placement, but they might need an alternative placement to, to, to make it less restrictive or whether in circumstances where they may be in a placement intended as short term, but um, the interim or longer term options um, are still to be determined. So at that point is when social care providers may be involved in in, in requests for information, as you say, and requests for uh, clarification of what the position is, either potentially before it gets to the court of protection or in the early stages. Yeah, absolutely. And it could also be 
that, and again, when we're talking about social care provider being indirectly involved, we're not envisaging that a social care provider will be joined as a party to proceedings at this stage, but more so they'll probably experience an increased volume in requests for information. You could also get a Section 21A challenge being brought where we've got a dispute as to discharge options. So, for example, if you've got a patient within an acute or mental hospital setting and they're looking to be discharged to the community, the social care provider might find, may find themselves being asked to do a needs assessment by their commissioner to see whether or not they could meet the needs of this particular service user. That would then continue should the service user move to that social care provider and you'll find that once a best interest decision has been made as to where they should move to just because they've moved and you now have them as a resident within your service that doesn't necessarily stop your role of providing information it'll continue as they kind of they move into the placement and they have that transition period to settle in and that's when again the volume of requests for updates as to how things are going and being asked to attend roundtable meetings to see how they're settled in is kind of where I think social care providers really see that involvement, albeit on an indirect level. Yeah, you touched on disclosure, disclosure of information. I think one of the things that so, social care providers might be familiar with are third party disclosure orders, mm. which come as part of the proceedings and they may well uh, request, make formal requests for updated information for the, for and records of that individual um, to be provided either on a one-off or on a routine basis to update the parties as to the care that's being provided. Yeah, and they form quite a key part actually of a Section 21A challenge and the third party disclosure order is often made right at the beginning and that could be if you haven't already received requests for information from the representative or from commissioners about the circumstances of the service user, that could be the other way at which a social care provider first even knows that court of protection proceedings have been brought, but all they will receive is that third party disclosure order. They'll not be privy to any other information of proceedings because they're not a formal party. So that comes back to what we're talking about at the beginning of actually, they're very much involved in the delivery of care, but the way that proceedings almost perceive them is very much so on the periphery. Yeah, I agree with it. And and I think the other bit that that comes into um, which might affect social care providers in, is in terms of trying to cooperate with those who are in the court proceedings to arrange visits by uh, litigation friends or judicial visits and that's a, a sort of more at a more practical level of being able to facilitate those visits um, and liaising with the representatives to in order to ensure that the court has the, the appropriate information necessary to make the decisions. Mm, absolutely. So when we're talking about visits within proceedings, that could be, as you say, from the representative or the advocate or a litigation friend. Um, and we touched very briefly in our first episode about the role of the official solicitor as litigation friend of last resort. And that's somebody who basically acts on the service user's behalf within proceedings. It kind of voices their opinions. And often you will have requests for that litigation friend to come to the service, to have a private meeting with the resident. So that means that we need to be very clear that social care providers are able to facilitate that. They're able to provide space where that visit can take place in private. And you could also, at the other end of the spectrum, have requests for a judicial visit. So the judge within proceedings may say or have a request where the service user says, I want to speak to the judge that's looking at this case, that's looking at my Section 21A challenge. Will they please come and see me? And I think it's an extra intricacy for social care providers to deal with, particularly with COVID, in that a lot of this happens now remotely. So it's about making sure that the social care providers are staff 
available to help use um, video recording. Teams links, for example, making sure that there's a laptop ready, all the basic practicalities that you talk of actually do build into a lot of time for staff of social care providers. But it's all a very crucial role in making sure that service users' wishes and feelings are then transposed into the proceedings. One of the questions that may arise is, is that can social care providers be compelled to provide information for court proceedings or can social care um, uh, managers or, or staff members be compelled to attend uh, a court of protection hearing? Mm, that's a really good question. So when you're not a party to proceedings, I think strictly the answer is no. But as soon as you receive, for example, a third party disclosure order, that is a mandatory order made by the court against the social care provider. So if you receive an order, and we can discuss third party disclosure orders in more detail in the third episode of this podcast series, but once you receive it, an order is mandatory and you need to comply with it. Further, will be again in an indirect manner, if the social care provider is deemed to not be providing records or to not be facilitating visits or to be in any way not assisting a service user to express their wishes and feelings to their representatives, then that's something where I think the court would look quite dimly at that. And you might find that actually the social care provider does end up being brought into proceedings a little bit more. So directions orders, for example, may say um, having a recording that the social care provider would make all best endeavours to make sure that they did comply or that they did ensure that visits went ahead. So I think if you have got service user within your service who has got Section 21A challenge and you are receiving requests for information, it is really important to comply because they're a service user and the entire point of Section 21A challenge is to make sure their best interests are met. And again, we've talked about it a few times now, but just because a social care provider is involved peripherally doesn't in any way negate the importance of their role in delivering care to the service user. Yeah, and I have to say, in my experience, and I suspect yours are the same, that, that the social care providers that we've had contact with in this capacity have have always been uh, helpful and, and have mm. sort of assisted as far as they're possible. Absolutely, um, yeah. I think that's probably the, the general view. Yeah, and I think in the purpose of what is one of the objectives of this series is to try and assist social care providers in understanding what they might be asked to do and understanding how they can almost balance this role and this request for extra information on top of the other burdens that they already have in delivering care. So absolutely, service care, social care providers are always very amicable and will always be there to assist the court and the parties, which they should do. But I think the amount of resources available to a social care provider in terms of how they can almost juggle these extra burdens is quite sparse. So that's something that we'd like to hopefully assist within these series. Yeah, because I think the more you understand about the process, the more you understand about um, what might be required and how, how that yeah. can best be provided. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that brings us to the end of our second episode. So I'll now hand back over to Jill. Thank you, Rachel and Liz. Um, well, I found that really useful and very, very helpful. And I, I certainly hope our, our audience of social care providers um, did too. I mean, I felt it gave a good understanding on how they may find themselves involved in a court of protection case. And really, I mean, the key point being that it, it's much more usual for that to be an, an indirect involvement rather than a formal involvement, which I think sets the scene you know, very well for our next episode, which will look more closely at disclosure by social care providers um, in, in court of protection proceedings. So thank you very much to, to Rachel and thank you very much to Liz. 
And should any of our listeners have any comments, questions or suggestions for future episodes, please feel free to get in touch with me via email at j.baker at hempsons.co.uk.